We've all heard about the nuclear football, the launch codes for nuclear war that are carried around in a briefcase behind the president wherever he goes. But what exactly is the nuclear football? The nuclear football is really a collection of binders, a collection of papers that lay out how nuclear war could unfold. And it's basically a menu of options that the president can flip through and look at. One of the military aides who used to be responsible for the football described it basically as a Denny's menu. You go through, you point at some pictures, and that's the type of nuclear war that you order. With a side order of fried everything, I'm sure. So when you hear things like that, you realize that you and me and everyone else are all in the exact same seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halady. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, in light of the recently launched impeachment investigation against President Donald Trump, we take into consideration the president's still unrestricted ability to unilaterally launch a nuclear war at will. We revisit our 2017 interview with Garrett Graff, author of Raven Rock, the story of the U.S. government's secret plan to save itself while the rest of us die. This stunning interview includes eyewitness information on what the nuclear football is, how it works, and the exact nature of the president's ability to use it. Really pertinent these days, don't you think? We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than Nancy Pelosi has yet considered during the impeachment inquiry. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, October 1st, 2019, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting out with some legal maneuvering here in the U.S., in Massachusetts, Attorney General Maura Healey has sued the Nuclear Regulatory Commission over its recent approval of the transfer of the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station license from Entergy to Holtec International. Healy and members of the state's congressional delegation have mounted an effort to block the transfer unless the NRC holds a full hearing on concerns over Holtec's abilities to safely decommission the nuclear plant, the company's financial stability, and its alleged involvement in a kickback scheme. No hearing was held before the NRC approved the transfer. In Tennessee, Judge Pamela Reeves, chief United States District Judge for the Eastern District of Tennessee, 
declared the Department of Energy and the National Nuclear Safety Administration in violation of the National Environmental Policies Act and vacated key decisions regarding the NNSA's enriched uranium operations at the Y-12 National Security Complex in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. So what does that mean? According to Ralph Hutchinson, coordinator of the Oak Ridge Environmental Peace Alliance, with this ruling, the NNSA no longer has any legal authority to continue construction of the uranium processing facility bomb plant. Congratulations to all those involved with this lawsuit, including Nukewatch New Mexico and the Natural Resources Defense League. At the shuttered San Onofre nuclear reactors in Southern California, in August of 2018, A 50-ton cask filled with radioactive waste got wedged 18 feet above the bottom of its concrete silo and hung there for almost an hour before it was finally lowered down. Majority plant owner Southern California Edison was forced to halt plans to transfer millions more pounds of spent nuclear fuel from wet to dry storage while federal regulators investigated what happened and made sure the process was safe. Even though federal inspectors found many of the waste-filled canisters had been scraped and scratched as they were lowered into what is supposedly an interim storage facility, still the Nuclear Regulatory Commission allowed the waste transfer program to resume in July. But documents recently obtained by the San Diego Union-Tribune show that an agency field inspector reviewing this incident issued internal reports noting that the canisters were designed and certified to be lowered into the storage vault without any scratches, which can lead to degradation of the containers and failure to maintain secure containment. An Edison spokesman said the utility is fully compliant with federal regulations and the reloading work has been proceeding safely. He also said pigs can fly and that Millie Vanilli really did do all their own singing. The canisters Edison is relying on to store spent fuel which are only five-eighths of an inch thick stainless steel, are licensed to be used for a whole two decades. The plutonium in nuclear fuel rods have a half-life of 24,000 years. Do the math. In New Hampshire, cracks have formed in the foundation of the Seabrook nuclear power plant, and local citizens are asking for more transparent, independent monitoring of these cracks. In their quote-unquote wisdom, Earlier this year, regulators extended Seabrook's operating license through 2050, despite calls to delay that decision until after the hearing. In San Francisco, at the Treasure Island Housing Development, low-income housing, of course, built above the highly toxic and radioactive site of a former Navy base, a basketball-sized chunk of radioactive dirt was found buried beneath a door of one of the new homes. The Navy says, but we tested and there was no radiation. Well, you sure missed this pile of it. In Japan, outrage after the Tokyo District Court absolved three former executives of Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO, of criminal responsibility for the 2011 nuclear accident that forced thousands of residents to flee and continues to contaminate the northeast part of the country and the Pacific Ocean. They were indicted on charges of professional negligence, resulting in the deaths of 44 people who were forced to evacuate, and injuries, including radiation injuries, of others at the start of the nuclear disaster. 
but the three were cleared of all charges after the court ruled that they could not have realistically foreseen a disaster of such magnitude. There have been protest demonstrations, as TEPCO knew of the dangers inherent in that site for years, but did nothing to counteract them. Nuclear experts from around the world are condemning the Japanese government's possible move to discharge radioactive water from the destroyed, melted-down Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant into the Pacific Ocean. Japan's closest neighbor, Korea, is particularly angered by this, as the discharged water will have a direct influence on the marine life and ecosystem in its territorial waters and eventually in the people themselves. About 1.1 million tons of contaminated water are being stored in 977 tanks at the remains of the power plant in Fukushima. By August 2020, it's projected that all storage facilities will be filled and there will be no more tanks to hold the 170 tons of radiation-contaminated water created every day. If they release it then, it will be just in time for the Olympic surfing event in Chiba and summer crowds on the beach. Taiwan has also protested the proposed water release with fears that currents could carry the polluted water across the Pacific Ocean to the coastline as far as North America, which may flow back to Taiwan in three to six years. We should be upset about it here in North America as well. International Olympic Committee President Thomas Bach intends to assure participants of the 2020 Olympics and Paralympics that Japanese food products are safe despite, well, Fukushima and all that. Right, like we're going to take his word for it? Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and Bach have reaffirmed in public that they will continue to work closely together to make the Tokyo Olympics and Paralympics a success. You think he's going to say anything against the sushi? In Taiwan, a recent survey has found active earthquake faults near nuclear power plants, and activists are calling for them not to be restarted. France has abandoned research into fourth-generation so-called fast-breeder nuclear reactors, citing mounting costs. And Belgium has run out of room to store low-grade nuclear waste. There's not enough room for the quantity of waste expected to be generated in the coming year. Belgium intends to build a new bunker with space for 5,000 vats of radioactive waste. It will cost 7 million euros and take a year to complete. Until it is ready, the country needs to look elsewhere for somewhere to dispose of nuclear waste. School lunches? And now... Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that's out of week. The Vatican. Yes, the Holy See, or not see, has called for boosting so-called peaceful uses of nuclear energy. And where did they do it? At the General Conference of the International Atomic Energy Agency. What? What the hell is the Vatican doing with the IAEA? Don't they recognize an unholy alliance when they see one? Apparently not. On September 16, at IAEA headquarters in Vienna, Austria, Archbishop Paul Richard Gallagher said... The application of various nuclear science and technology services offered by the IAEA can enhance our stewardship of God's creation. So let me get this straight. 
the very technology that creates massive quantities of deadly radioactive waste. And we know exposure to radioactive waste and radiation causes cancer. And as we look at the entire nuclear fuel chain, we see that it initially targets poor and indigenous communities involved with uranium mining, then proceeds to habitually spew leaks, dumps, try to cover their tracks with burning their material, which just spreads the contamination, industry lies, denials, reactors creating plutonium as part of the so-called spent fuel, plutonium that is easily purified into weapons grade and can be used to make explosive devices, or you can just take the radioactive leftover materials and smush them around the world in depleted uranium dirty bombs. That's stewardship of God's creation? Is the Vatican actually trying to tell us that God is in favor of nukes and nuclear contamination? But wait, there's more. Gallagher ended by expressing gratitude for the IAEA's efforts in developing strategies for the Program of Action for Cancer Therapy. Say what? Here's where we go down the rabbit hole, through the looking glass, and into bizarro land, Alice. You see, through the Program of Action for Cancer Therapy, or PACT, quote, the IAEA provides member states with a wide range of tools, services, and support to assist them in their efforts to address the cancer burden. You want to address the cancer burden? Get rid of nukes. Shut down the reactors, which make more radioactive waste every day. We have no place to safely store that waste for the hundreds of thousands of years that it will take until it becomes inert. We have to find ways to do that or to neutralize us. Put your money into researching genuinely safe ways to protect people and the environment from exposure to radionuclides. Pressure your member states to sign the UN's Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. That'll be a great thing for you to do. Don't pretend that you can, quote, control cancer through conferences, engaging with the comparably lying World Health Organization, pontificating, that's what the Vatican does, pontificating through bad nuclear theater to create the illusion of caring and acting, and then call it a concerted effort to establish strong political commitment for an effective global response to cancer. The effective global response to cancer to begin with is shut down the nukes. And don't give over whatever authority you have in the world Vatican by aligning with this lying drivel. And Vatican, while you're at it, why don't you clean your own house of the pedophile priests and the system that you have created internally that protects them from prosecution? They are your radioactive waste. And right now, they are continuing unabated to contaminate children and life around the world. Stay out of nukes, stay in your own backyard, and clean it up. And that's why holy unsee, holy not see, and your lying minions, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out a week. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, pop quiz. How many of these words describe you? Kind, caring, compassionate, helpful, friendly, fair, hardworking, honest, 
generous. I bet most of you can lay claim to more than one of those words in describing yourself. Why do I say that? Because you're listening to this show, and that means you care about the issues it presents and the impact of nuclear energy and weaponry on the future of life on Earth. That's why Nuclear Hot Seat is pledged to provide news stories on a wide range of nuclear topics every week with information that is verifiably sourced and fact-checked for accuracy. Plus, we provide eye-opening interviews with people who are genuine experts on the nuclear industry, even if they're not in the nuclear industry. And actually, it's better that way. But, you know, to keep the show going, we incur weekly, monthly, and annual costs. And that's where we need your help. So I'm calling upon all those wonderful qualities in you in asking for your support. A donation of any size will help us keep providing you with the nuclear news you count on. To help us out, just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button. That's how you can send us a one-time donation of any size or set up a recurring donation of any size. And if you want a way to support the show while sticking to your budget, there's a big green Donate button, which allows you to set up a recurring donation of just $5 a month. Here in the U.S., that's the price of a cup of coffee and a nice tip to the barista. So buy Nuclear Hot Seat the equivalent of a cup of coffee this month, and every month if you can. Know that whatever you can do to help, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Here's this week's featured interview. Ever since the presidential impeachment inquiry was begun last week, was it only last week? I've received several inquiries about the status of the nuclear football, a.k.a. the codes to launch nuclear weapons, carried in a briefcase by a military attaché who follows the president around at all times. People asked, are those codes still available to be used to launch a nuclear war? Can the general stop its use or slow it down if the current president decides to use the codes to launch nuclear weapons anywhere in the world? I decided it's time to revisit an interview I originally did in 2017 with Garrett Graff, the author of Raven Rock, the story of the U.S. government's secret plan to save itself while the rest of us die. Catchy title, that. Graff is a former editor of Politico magazine, editor-in-chief of Washingtonian magazine in Washington, D.C., and an instructor at Georgetown University in the Master's in Professional Studies Journalism and Public Relations program. In the book and in this interview, Graff reveals the nature of the contents of the nuclear football and how free the president really is to use them as though he were ordering from a menu at Denny's. Garrett Graff, thank you so much for joining us today on Nuclear Hot Seat. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. What is your background, and how long have you been a journalist? So I've covered national security in Washington for about a dozen years now. I started off actually covering the FBI and have sort of branched out from there and spend a lot of my time covering cybersecurity today. But this is a little bit... You know, this is a subject that I bumped up against uh, throughout my time in Washington. It's sort of just one of those things 
that you hear a lot about in the shadows, the idea that there's this secret plan for government officials to be evacuated, these secret facilities spread around Washington. And so I had talked to people who had been evacuated on 9-11, talked to people who had been part of these plans during the Bush and Obama years and had always just been, you know, vaguely interested in these plans. But then my curiosity got piqued when I found a government ID badge. I, actually, a colleague of mine found a government ID badge and brought it in to me that was clearly in a U.S. intelligence officer's badge. And he asked me, my colleague asked me to get it back to the badge holder. And I, uh, when I turned the badge over, found this set of evacuation instructions. And I started following the route on Google Maps and Google Satellite and could see it went out of Washington and out to West Virginia. And on the satellite, you could actually see it end at this bunker, this unmarked bunker in West Virginia, where this road went up a mountain, there was a guard shack and a chain link fence, and then this road just disappeared into the side of the mountain. And I was like, wow, like this is one of the new facilities that have been created since 9-11. So your concept was that this was a new facility. How far back does this facility, which is Raven Rock, how far back does that go? The facility I discovered actually wasn't Raven Rock. It was a different one in West Virginia. But these facilities sort of date back to the beginning of the Cold War. I mean, right during the Truman and Eisenhower years, as the government first began to consider the implications of this arriving atomic technology and the idea that you could have an entire city wiped out in an instant. And so they began to build these facilities around Washington uh, and across the country. Ultimately, there were more than 100 of these bunkers just around Washington alone, bunkers and relocation facilities, and then also spread across the rest of the country. I mean, FEMA, which is the agency that runs these facilities and runs these bunkers, you know, they had regional bunkers in places like Bethel, Georgia, and Maynard, Massachusetts, and Denton, Texas. And AT&T, which was the agency, the company that ran the communication systems for these bunkers and the post-apocalypse world, it had all of its own set of bunkers spread across the country where, quote-unquote, AT&T employees ran the government's continuity of government communication systems. Raven Rock was one of the facilities specifically marked for the president to go to. Give us a sense as to what it consisted of. It's almost mind-boggling in scale. I mean, so the three major bunkers that were built during the Cold War were Raven Rock in Waynesboro, Pennsylvania, Mount Weather in Berryville, Virginia, and then Cheyenne Mountain in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And these facilities are truly hollowed out mountains that have been filled with small cities made up of freestanding buildings. They contain everything that you would expect in a small city. I mean, they've got their own fire departments, their own police departments, their own medical facilities, cafeterias, everything that you would need to support life underground for weeks or even a month or two at a time. And even whereas many of these facilities nationwide have been shut down 
in the 25 years since the end of the Cold War. The three biggest, Mount Weather, Raven Rock, and NORAD in Colorado Springs, they still operate. Uh, They're still being updated. They're still running 24 hours a day, still staffed 24 hours a day. Cheyenne Mountain actually has a Subway fast food franchise inside today that helps feed its workforce. So you can still get your $5 footlongs even after nuclear Armageddon. What a thing to be able to have after the apocalypse. Yes. It struck me as naive that the plan seemed to call for supplies that would last two weeks, three weeks, maybe four weeks, at most a few months. Do you actually think that they believe that that will be enough to weather the worst of the apocalypse before coming back up again? So the goal was effectively to protect against the initial blasts and then the peak of the fallout that was expected and calculated to last about two to three weeks. And that the hope and the expectation was that after two to three weeks, you know, the world wouldn't be normal on the outside by any stretch of the imagination, but that you would be able to at least venture outside and forage for food supplies and reactivate the gas stations and oil tankers and those types of things. Again, the word that comes to mind is naive because for this <laughs> for this show, we cover the effects of nuclear radiation and even so-called low-level radiation over the long run can be more devastating than that which comes from fallout from an initial nuclear Absolutely. blast. Yep. So there seems to be a hole in their thinking, if not many more than one, but we can get to some more of those. All of this is to guarantee what is called continuity of government, that our government officials survive and can reestablish the United States. Explain to us a bit about what continuity of government is supposed to look like and how it's supposed to function. Continuity of government was the umbrella term used to describe a whole series of different plans through the Cold War and, and even to the present day. You can break them down into a couple of broad categories. The first are who would actually be in charge of the nuclear weapons and the nuclear arsenal as an attack unfolded, minute by minute, hour by hour. And so that's a whole series of plans to protect the president, to protect top advisors, to ensure communications systems operate through an enemy attack, and that that was, you know, an incredibly elaborate system at its peak during the Cold War. You had special designated floating White Houses, special Navy ships at sea that could have served as an emergency command post for the president. You had these massive bunkers uh, at Raven Rock at Mount Weather where the president and his cabinet could be evacuated. You had doomsday airplanes, the airborne command post 747s that were known as the night watch planes, the presidential doomsday planes that were kept on constant alert in and around Washington through the Cold War. Those planes, by the way, still exist today, still sitting alert. Um, You know, as we are talking here, one of those presidential doomsday planes is on alert at Offutt Air Force Base in Omaha, Nebraska. It is fully staffed. Its engines are turning and it is ready to launch in just 15 minutes. Then you have a second sort of broad sweep of plans 
that deal with how the government would rebuild in the days, weeks, and months after an attack. And this is where I found sort of some of the strangest information of my research, which was the way that the government reimagined the post-apocalyptic analog of its peacetime government. And so the post office was the agency that was in charge of registering the dead and figuring out who was still left alive. The National Park Service was the agency that would have actually run the refugee camps because the expectation was the refugee camps could be largely set up on national parkland, which wouldn't be targeted by a nuclear attack. The Department of Agriculture was in charge of feeding Americans and devoted an incredible amount of energy to manufacturing millions upon millions of survival crackers, these little graham cracker-like wafers made by Nabisco and Kroger and other companies and stockpiled in fallout shelters around the country uh, in the event of nuclear war. And then, you know, these plans evolved and changed over the course of the Cold War. Dwight Eisenhower had this extensive plan to bring in private sector leaders who would be deputized by Eisenhower in advance to come in and nationalize entire industries. You know, you would have one person in charge of manufacturing, one person in charge of housing, one person in charge of all wages and prices in the United States, one person in charge of all transportation in the United States. And that these figures, you know, walked around through the Eisenhower presidency with these doomsday emergency letters of authorization. No one knew who they were. No one knew that they had this special set of emergency powers in the event of an attack. And they would have just emerged and announced that they were in charge of the country afterwards. And even while we don't necessarily know that that plan has any modern analogs, many of these plans actually do. The updated sets of these plans today call for the post office to be the agency in charge of distributing medical countermeasures in the event of a public health pandemic or a biological or chemical attack on the United States, and that they have a whole plan at the post office where your friendly neighborhood postman or postwoman would be the person knocking on your door to give you the anthrax antidote or the Ebola vaccine. There are so many assumptions in that about the fact that we would just go back to living normally as opposed to the disruptive nature of all of this and how it would play out given human psychology. For example, there's no way to fit into this how malleable the survivors would be to someone they don't know stepping up to them and saying, oh, by the way, I'm in charge of this aspect of government now. And there's no saying that the sequestered government officials would actually follow the plans instead of perhaps there being a power grab by someone who wants to set himself up as dictator. How likely do you think these plans are to be followed should there be this catastrophic an emergency? I think it's actually one of the great questions of this era and of these plans, which is the extent to which... I think the secrecy surrounding the plans might have actually undermined them at the moment of need. I certainly understand that there's a need for tactical secrecy. You know, uh, who would be evacuated where? 
what the specific communications capabilities are of specific vehicles or specific facilities. But there's this whole broad strategic level of these plans that was kept secret throughout the Cold War, I think unnecessarily, in part because I do think that there would have been real questions about the legitimacy of these people, you know, announcing that they were in charge, announcing that they had this special set of powers. We know, for instance, that there were very expansive plans, probably actually versions of these plans that still exist today, that would have seen the suspension of civil liberties in the United States, the Declaration of Martial Law, the suspension of habeas corpus. We're familiar all with the presidential nuclear football, the emergency briefcase that follows him around. Most people don't know that through the Cold War, the U.S. Attorney General was followed around by a U.S. Attorney General's emergency briefcase that held executive orders, pre-written policies, pre-written suspensions of civil liberties, and something and a document known as the Master Arrest Warrant, which would have allowed the FBI and other law enforcement agencies to round up more than 10,000 suspected subversives in the United States and hold them without charge, you know, without necessarily any proof or evidence of a crime. So it would be the United States, but not really. Yeah, and many of these plans, you sort of see a sense where the hope was, I think, to preserve the spirit of the Constitution without the letter of the Constitution, you know, that we would have three branches of government, but that they wouldn't look anything like the peacetime three branches of the government. From what we can sort of understand and glimpse of the way that these plans still exist today and would be utilized today, it seems pretty clear that there is some plan for something like a super-empowered rump Congress, where some group, perhaps as small as one to four members of Congress, would be deputized in an emergency to speak and work on behalf of the entire Congress, that there would be no you know, sort of fully operational House or Senate. You would just have a small number of people representing the legislative branch in discussions with the executive branch. That's almost as scary as the thought of having a nuclear weapon dropped on us. Yes, and I think that that's one of the challenges in this, is that, you know, these are very dire situations that would have, at least as the U.S. government envisioned it, incredibly dire consequences for the United States. Let's go back to the nuclear football, which you mentioned, which takes such a place in our thinking these days. What exactly does it consist of? And if the worst happens and there is a nuclear attack and the president is not available, who then controls the football? The nuclear football is in many ways much less exciting than popular culture holds it to be. The idea that there's some sort of iris scanner or even the, the simple idea of a you know red nuclear launch button is actually just a product of fiction. The nuclear football is really a collection of binders, a collection of papers 
that lay out how nuclear war could unfold. And it's basically a menu of options that the president can flip through and look at one of the military aides who used to be responsible for the football, described it basically as a Denny's menu. You go through, you point at some pictures, and that's the type of nuclear war that you order. And do you get refills if you get rid of something? Do you get get to have another nuclear bomb dropped? Just raises, <laughs> raises that image. Are there any checks and balances in place. I mean, popular culture has it that whoever is president is just three to four minutes away from being able to initiate a nuclear launch without having to get any kind of approvals, and there's no way that it can be stopped. Is that accurate? It's absolutely accurate. And as scary as that sounds, you have to think about the context in which these plans were developed, where The idea was that you wanted to strip away anything that could slow down the process. The hope and expectation was that, you know, you might have only 15, 20 minutes to make a launch order and execute a launch order before the United States was hit. And so the hope was that the government would be able to execute a presidential launch order as quickly as possible without any checks and balances, because the expectation through the Cold War, again, was, frankly, that the person who was in charge of the nuclear weapons was the most sober, most thoughtful person in the realm of nuclear war. I'll let that one pass for now. (laughs) The only time the continuation of government plan was implemented was after 9-11, How did it play out, and how successful did it prove to be? So, as you said, 9-11 is the only time that we've really seen these plans put into action. Parts of the plans have been activated during previous emergencies, but to a certain extent on 9-11, you saw them put into full activation. Richard Clark, the National Security Council official at the White House who was in charge of this, you know, gave the activate cog order, the activate continuity of government. And you saw helicopters swoop in and evacuate congressional leaders from the west lawn of the Capitol, whisk them out to Mount Weather, the facility in Berryville, Virginia, where the president and others would likely go in the event of an emergency. The president himself in Sarasota, Florida, reading to that classroom of elementary school students, was evacuated to Air Force One and put aboard the plane and raced into the sky and held seven miles above the earth until the U.S. military and the U.S. Secret Service were confident that they understood what was unfolding that day. But for the most part, the plans didn't work. They weren't fast enough. They discovered uh, that many of the communication systems didn't really function in the way that people had expected them to. The president was largely cut off from communication aboard Air Force One. And that the facilities, even when people were evacuated to them on 9-11, weren't really up to snuff. And so what you saw in the years after 9-11 was White House Chief of Staff Andy Card and Deputy White House Chief of Staff Joe Hagan, who was the White House official in charge of the operations of the plans, 
they spent you know an enormous amount of time trying to update these facilities, update the communication systems, and really be in a position that they hope would be able to respond better in the years ahead. These days, with the so-called or assumed improvements in the system, how is it decided who gets to go, who has to stay behind? Where is that line drawn and who draws it? So a little bit of it is person by person. These were deeply secret plans during the Cold War. I mean, you wouldn't even necessarily know that officials in the next office might be part of these plans uh, and that you might not be. I tell the story in the book of Aaron Sorkin, the director, when he was researching what became the West Wing and the American president. He was having drinks with George Stephanopoulos, the White House communications director, and George Stephanopoulos showed him his evacuation pass. Well, when this was incorporated into a West Wing episode where Josh Lyman, the deputy chief of staff on the West Wing, gets one of these evacuation cards, on the set that day, Dee Dee Myers, who had been Stephanopoulos's White House press secretary, pulls Sorkin aside and says, you know, I don't think that this is that realistic because that these cards don't exist. And Aaron Sorkin realized that she had never actually known that she wouldn't have been part of these plans. And somewhere that decision got made. Is there any way to know who makes them and is there a court of appeals on it? Uh, there's certainly no court of appeals. At each agency, they are able to select some set of their staff in key positions. Some of it shifts administration to administration. Some of it is set basically by people who are in specific jobs. You know, your senior leadership, the top national security and law enforcement officials in the United States, top intelligence officials and so forth. And what accommodation, if any, is currently made for the wives and the children of those people who are evacuated? That's a great question, and it's something that has dogged these plans since the very beginning. In Operation Alert 1954, the first large-scale emergency evacuation, you had Eisenhower's cabinet evacuate to Mount Weather, along with all of their secretaries, and the wives of the cabinet stayed behind and spent uh, what one newspaper described as a very chilly afternoon playing cards together and realizing that their husbands did not intend to save them in the event of nuclear war. Well, throughout the Cold War, though, you actually had a lot of people who struggled with you know, what their duty to the country was versus the duty to their family. And Earl Warren, when he was chief justice and was given one of these evacuation passes, he asked where the one was for his wife, was told there wasn't one, and then promptly handed his pass back in and said, now you have room for another very important person in the United States because I'm going to stick with Mrs. Warren. And good for him. Your book's subtitle, the story of the U.S. government's secret plan to save itself while the rest of us die. Almost sounds like the slug line for a horror movie. And indeed, it's about a horror. For those left on the surface, whether they have survived the direct attack or in other less populated places of the country that weren't attacked, what do you think 
it's going to look like? And have there been any viable plans for the rest of us, or are we truly on our own? So it depends a little bit on the scale of the incident, right? You know, part of these stories is the evolving technology revolution as these weapons get stronger. In the early days of the Cold War, the government really did have hope of being able to evacuate many of the cities, to be able to evacuate much of the civilian population or get them underground into fallout shelters. By the latter half of the Cold War and certainly the 1980s, weapons were too plentiful and too powerful, and the plans were effectively just save a small number of government officials and hope for the best. But even under a worst-case scenario, you know, you would still have tens of millions of Americans who would survive at least the initial blast. I mean, as you said, there's all sorts of problems with fallout and long-term radiation afterwards. But the hope was that there, to have some government in place to protect those tens of millions of Americans afterwards. And some of this continues to the present day, in part because what you have today is a threat that relies a lot less on the extent to which, let's say, a rogue state or a terrorist group uh, attacks just Washington or just New York, that the idea of the government needing to be available and needing to be there for the rest of the country in the wake of a catastrophic attack on the Capitol is in some ways more present and important today than it ever was during the Cold War. Raven Rock is an extremely intense book. As I wrote to you when we were setting up this interview, it's not exactly light bedtime reading. How ha- no, it's not. How has it been received? The response to it has been wonderful. I mean, partly because it, this is an era of the Cold War that is largely forgotten today. I mean, much of the Cold War, just writ large, is forgotten today. And this is trying to recapture and re-explain this era. But at the same time, these plans are, I think, part of what makes this book fun is that everything that you could imagine the actual plans are wackier and crazier. You know, all of the satire and the fiction of the Cold War actually was unable to capture just how crazy these plans actually were. So you have in Dr. Strangelove, the classic Stanley Kubrick satire, where they are worrying about the mine shaft gap. Well, it turns out, I found in my research, we actually did worry about the mine shaft gap during the Cold War, that you had the Boy Scouts sent out nationwide to mark and identify caves and abandoned mines that might be able to serve as fallout shelters for the population after nuclear war. I mean, it's just, it's incredible the amount of effort, the amount of money, and the amount of time that went into these plans. You lived with this book for, how many years did it take for you to write it? It was a four-year project, start to finish. What did it take for you to write it? And even more importantly, what did it take out of you to write it? What's hard about writing this book is not understanding fully what you don't know. So you have a tremendous 
amount of information that has been declassified in recent years, which is how I was able to piece together much of the plans from the early Cold War. But at the same time, the modern plans are still locked away. We have glimpses of them. We can discern some of them from earlier plans that have been released. But it's hard to understand what the full picture of some of these plans are because they remain classified. Was there a moment in writing the book or in researching it where you suddenly were hit with the enormity of the story or made a discovery that was particularly shocking or impactful on you? Part of it is just understanding the extent to which we, and by we, I mean the government, sort of thought through every level of these plans. And so not just who to protect, but what to protect. So this question of how you preserve America actually becomes a pretty existential question about what is America. At the National Archives, they sat down and decided that they would save the Declaration of Independence before they saved the Constitution. At the Library of Congress, they sat down and came up with evacuation plans for the Gettysburg Address and George Washington's military commission. And perhaps my favorite detail in the entire book was learning that through the Cold War, there was a specially trained team of park rangers at the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia, whose job it was to evacuate the Liberty Bell into the mountains of Appalachia. And if they're park rangers, it would be interesting to know if they're still funded. (laughs) So if the unthinkable happens and we find ourselves at the receiving end of nuclear warheads, Would you want to be one of those people inside the bunkers who survives and then comes out to face whatever is afterwards? Or would you rather go in that first blast? I think that part of the question is the scale of the attack. In the modern world, it's entirely possible that you could have a small-scale nuclear incident that would be devastating to a city a couple of cities, or even a region, but that the rest of the country would be largely untouched. And I think what's hard is people don't want to think through their own mortality. They don't really like thinking through the answers to questions like that. And so that became a big part of why it was hard to maintain the readiness necessary for the civilian population during the Cold War, because you might be tempted to build a fallout shelter during a particular crisis like the Cuban Missile Crisis. But the idea of keeping that stocked, of rotating the food, rotating the water, rotating the medical supplies, was more than most people wanted to handle because they don't want to devote two weekends a year to thinking about their own deaths in nuclear holocaust. And it sounds like that would include you as well. Exactly. So has there been any outreach from Hollywood yet? Any movie sale or option? Well, I think we are working on a documentary about this, trying to bring it more into view and dive a little bit deeper into some of these plans. Is there anything you'd like to say in conclusion? No, you have covered all of my favorite points in the book. I mean, I think that the the thing that just I came away from wowed by in the course of this was realizing just how extensive 
and redundant and secret all of these plans were for so much of the Cold War. And unfortunately, while we have no specifics on it, we can pretty well bet that it's even more redundant now because if the command comes to launch a nuclear weapon, it sounds like there is nothing that will stop this country from launching it, even if it's some private who's the last person left who can get to those codes and put them in. Absolutely. I mean, these plans were designed to ensure that there is always someone left in the United States ready to give the launch order. What a terrifying thought. And we'll leave you with that. Garrett Graff, thank you so much for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. That was Garrett Graff, author of the book Raven Rock, the story of the U.S. government's secret plan to save itself while the rest of us die. By the way, Garrett did get that badge back to the person who lost it, who, according to Garrett, seemed very happy to get back his entrance ticket to governmental protection in case of a nuclear attack. Wouldn't you be happy, too? Activist shout-out! We are again at Keep Space for Peace Week, October 5th through 12th. It's an international week of protest to stop the militarization of space, calling for no space force, no missile defense, close U.S. NATO bases worldwide, stop drone surveillance and killing, end privatization of foreign military policy, convert the military-industrial complex, deal with climate change and global poverty, and support the Green New Deal. Dot, 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 as long as it doesn't include nukes. The entire schedule of planned events, which go alphabetically from Augusta, Maine to Washington, D.C., and include South Africa, India, England, Korea, Nepal, Ireland, Italy, Canada, and who knows, maybe something just around the corner from you or something that you get started yourself. We'll have a link up to the page that lists all of the various events and the impressive list of co-sponsors up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 432. And catching up with an earlier story, on September 4th, 20 Trident Plowshares campaigners and one Extinction Rebellion activist were arrested after blocking both entrances to the DSEI Arms Fair in London. This was intended to disrupt the event and highlight the role of arms traders in targeting civilians and threatening mass destruction. Two cars and a boat on a trailer, along with activists locked to each other through suitcases and tubes, were used to prevent arms fair traffic from entering the center in preparation for the DSEI event, which stands for Defense and Security Equipment International. Boy, what an oxymoron. What a contradiction in terms. No security. Just more war and destruction. This was the No Nuclear Day of Action, the third day of the Stop Arms Fair, which is a full week of planned disruption. The Trident Plowshares activist took this time of visibility to call on the UK government to sign the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons and to disarm the Trident nuclear weapons system. Are we about to see the rejuvenation of a genuinely international anti-war movement? Stay tuned for further updates. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, October 1st, 2019. 
Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunredard.wordpress.com, miningawareness.wordpress.com, the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons, or ICAN, wbur.org, NukeWatch New Mexico, the San Diego Union Tribune, kimkempt.com, Bangor Daily News, sf.curbed.com, ReviewJournal.com, TheRiveredReport.com, Asia Times, Kyoto News, Japan Times, AHTribune.com, Focus Taiwan, Brussels Times, NHK.or.jp, UNBC.ca, VaticanNews.va, and as always, the completely captured Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which does bring up the thought, Maybe we should start putting regulatory in quotes. A reminder that Nuclear Hot Seat is now available on all your favorite podcast platforms. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe so that you don't lose out on any episodes. And if there's a platform that you use that we've missed, let us know and we'll load it up there as well. Thanks to all of you for listening and joining with Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers around the world in 123 countries on six continents and counting. Now, if you would like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week, it's real easy to accomplish. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down for the yellow box, and sign up for a weekly email link to the latest show. Now, you know, I rely on people on the ground who see the nuclear stories in front of them. So don't go scratching your head and going, why isn't she covering them on Nuclear Hot Seat? Let me know what they are, and let's see what I can do about covering them. So if you've got a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, Take a moment to send a donation of any size to NuclearHotSeat.com. We will really be grateful for your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2019, Libby Halevi and Heartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that the nuclear arsenal represents a self-destruct button for the human race. So let's keep it out of the hands of children and presidents. There you go. You have just had your personal nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.